Hello and welcome to this live stream. We've got a very special guest today that I'm excited to have a nice long conversation with about what's called the boy crisis. And I say that because he's actually the author of a book titled The Boy Crisis, Dr. Warren Farrell. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Why Men Are the Way They Are. I think this could turn into a counseling session today, Doc. I'm also the myth of male power and a book on couples communication. Women can't hear what men don't say. Doc, you've got a fascinating life. I do want to get into the boy crisis, but just for people that maybe haven't seen your book or aren't as familiar with your work, give us a little bit of your background and how you, how and why you committed your life to this kind of work. Uh, my background actually started uh, when I was in the in this area. It started when I was in the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City, and I was really in favor of the women's movement as long as it was expanding options for women, and as long as it was focused in, on "I am woman, I am strong." Um, as it began to be focused more on "I am woman, I've been wronged," and becoming critical of men and seeing men as the oppressors, I felt it was taking a wrong turn. And so what uh, had originally led to my doing very well financially um, as I spoke out and, and began to be critical of, of portions of the feminist movement that I felt were not being very constructive and very um, much in favor of bringing the family together, um, I became a, a lot less popular. And so that's a little bit of my background. So the boy crisis, it's incredible as I've been doing more and more research, I wanna get into working with young men and developing leaders, but you look at the economic lapse that's taking place right now. I'm curious to hear what your take is, but it seems like the socialization of men is not serving uh, young boys and young men very well. So when you look at the title of your book and, you, and someone were to ask you, so what is the boy crisis? What's your answer? My answer is that um, I started years ago uh, when people when people in like Japan, a woman who was a teacher came up to me and said, you know, Dr. Farrell, I know you're speaking all on the women's movement, but um, the boys in my class are having more problems than the girls. And I started seeing this was happening all around the world. And so then I looked very carefully at some major worldwide studies um, and they found that in the 53 largest developed nations, boys were doing worse on every academic subject than girls were. And they were also doing worse than they used to on things like mental health, physical health, and so on. And I started saying, what is this about? And so I started looking at the 53 largest developed nations. And the key word was developed. In developed nations, there was more permission for divorce and more permissions for mothers to have children without having fathers involved, without being married. And, um, and, and it was in that segment of the population that the boys in particular were doing much worse. And so I started seeing that you know, there was a, one of the causes of the, of the boy crisis was dad deprivation. But at the time I had identified 10 different um, causes like lack of male teachers in schools and things like that. But then as I examined them more carefully, I started to see that if a, if a boy had and a girl had a, a good mother and father involvement, and then they went into a school with almost all female teachers, there wasn't a big negative impact. But if they had only a mother who was involved, um, or pre predominantly a mother, minimal father involvement, and then they went, particularly if a boy went from a, a home with only a mother to a, sc a school 
with almost all female teachers. He had no male role models to channel his testosterone constructively. And so he began to be very vulnerable for looking for male role models in gang leaders or drug dealers or some type of um, you know, uh, negative uh, sort of uh, uh, purpose. For example, almost all our ISIS recruits are dad-deprived boys and girls. Um, almost all of our prisoners are not only 93% males, but most of those males, about 90% of them, are dad-deprived males. And so I started looking more carefully at all these, th these damages of dad deprivation, and that's when I began to say, wait a minute, the boy crisis is, yes, it's caused, there are 10 different causes or contributors to it, but by far and away, I realized that the hub cause uh, was, the, uh, was, was dad deprivation. And then I began investigating that, and two major things happened, seeing that it was the dad deprivation manifested in 50 some odd different areas, like committing suicide, being depressed. And also it was, um, and, and, it, and it was able to be turned around by doing a lot of things that, that the culture was not currently doing. So uh, I guess let's get to this. What, what do you think is the root cause of this boy crisis? Let me just add a little bit of context to this and see if this mm -hmm. colors your answer anyway. But I've been going out as of late and as much as I can in the mornings or whatnot, just meeting with some old buddies, having a cup of coffee, lunch, whatever it might be. And what's been so interesting to me, Doc, is that every male I sit down with is absolutely starving for authentic vulnerable male-to-male -male relationships. I mean, yes. starving for it. Yes. So what's at the root, root cause of this boy crisis? And if you can speak to what I just mentioned about this male-to-male -male relationship challenge, what's going on there? Well, men have always been um, taught that to be loved and respected, each generation had its war. And we expected boys to become, we, you know, we, told, we gave boys social bribes of becoming heroes and, um, and if they would be willing to sacrifice their lives uh, for that nation's war. And the result of that is that, that we're not under Nazi rule. Um, and, you know, but hundreds of thousands of men have given their lives over the years uh, to make sure that we had that type of freedom and that security. That was wonderful for the nation. And it's wonderful for each country that feels that, that, that the soldiers who lost their lives, the men who lost their lives really contributed to their country. However, it meant that when we were at boot camp, we learned that we we shouldn't express our feelings, we shouldn't express our fears, that the war machine works best uh, when there's no squeaky wheels. So whatever your sensitivities are, keep them to yourselves and, um, and don't express them because your job is to be willing to be disposable, to be willing to die. That's the way you prove yourself a man. Wow. And so we, and we learned that, you know, women, um, they fell in love with the officer and the gentleman, not the private and the pacifist. Um, so women on the one hand wanted to express uh, us to express feelings, but they were more like Lois, Lois Lane, the Clark Kent who was expressing his feelings and it was very sensitive and caring and human, she ignored until she found out that the Clark Kent was Superman. Then she wanted the Clark Kent, the Superman to be able to cry, but she wasn't even interested in the Clark Kent who would cry to begin with. And so this is the challenge that men have had, is that the way that we became men and served as men and found our purpose 
was ways that were extremely good for the country for the most part, but they were not necessarily extremely good for the individual man. And one of the ways they weren't good for the individual man is being able to share vulnerabilities. You know, if I were, if you and I were, um, as let's say, executive vice president at a bank, and we both hope to become, you know, the, the, the next level of vice president, or maybe the president of the bank or the CEO, and I started sharing with you, you know, gee, my wife and I are having challenges at home, and I'm really upset, I'm getting a little depressed about that. Um, and you, in all good you know, sense, might listen for about a minute and then begin to sort of worry about me. And then when it came to job for maybe a, a time for recommending a promotion, you'd say, you know, maybe we shouldn't promote Warren Farrell right now. He's kind of depressed. So my revealing my vulnerabilities to you only created more vulnerability for me. Um, and because now I'm not only seen as a loser at home, but I'm also seen as a loser at work and I'm experiencing myself as a loser in both places, which only sends me more, more deeply into depression. So we learned to keep our mouths shut because we saw that men who were successful repressed their feelings. Men who were successful did not express their feelings. And so now we have an opportunity for an evolutionary shift to find how do we create um, and give permission for for our sons to be their unique selves, but still have the discipline to accomplish things and not just sort of sit, sit, sit on their heels um, and lay back. But when we hear when our sons are 15 and 14 and they're going to school and they're hearing that you know the future is female and you're just a, a, an oppressor and we're, you're part of a patriarchy in which um, you made rules to benefit yourselves to, at the expense of us, that doesn't ring true for us. And we just sort of, and our sons start closing down and fearing that, you know, if they if they take initiatives too quickly with women, they'll be seen as a sexual harasser. If they don't take initiatives quickly enough, they'll be seen as a wimp. And so our, our sons, 14, 15, 16, who are less mature on average than the females are taking initiatives with, are just not, not, they're feeling caught between a rock and a hard place. I mean, you just read my mind, Doc. I was just gonna share with you, listening to you, it's sort of like, what do I do? I mean, you talk about the fact, and there's, there's so much you just mentioned, but for one, you said, Lois Lane wasn't interested in Clark Kent being vulnerable. All of a sudden he's Superman. You've got sort of this, I think, ingrained idea, at least from what I've been told from other women, is that look, Back in the day, we wanted a man to protect us when we were in the cave. And so I think that still is at a root there. And now all of a sudden he's Superman and it's okay. But how much of that was socialized into us? One. And the other thing you mentioned is, Chris, well, now, now this person's got quote unquote success. Are we defining success for men in the wrong way? Does that need to be redefined or? We, we, yes, we need to redefine it more broadly. So the the good news is we're no longer, you know, killing uh, nearly as uh, you know, a much smaller percentage of men are being killed in wars. The other good news is that women are helping to share the economic burden. Um, and, and but but we've evolved a society where women basically, when they have children and they're married and they're middle class or above, those women have three options when they have children. Option one is to work full time. Option two is to be full-time with the children. Option three is to do some combination of both. But we don't even say to men what the issue, what the options are for them. And men sort of conclude, well, I have three options too. You know, option one is to work full-time. Option two is to work full-time. And option three is to work full-time. Or if he's an executive, work more hours. And if he's a, a working class person, to work two jobs. 
And so, uh, and the man sort of sits by when the mother is pregnant and sort of watches what her decision is and then adjusts accordingly, accordingly to see how much he has to work. But when he works, but when he does work more, uh, feminists often look at that and say, well, look at, you know, he's earning more money or he's more likely to be superintendent of schools. Uh, whereas many men are saying to themselves, wait a minute, I was making much less money when I was an elementary school teacher. But when I had my wife and I had two children together or three children together, I needed to make more money. So I gave up my passion being an elementary school teacher. I became a superintendent of schools because that earned twice as much money, but I had to work twice as hard also. And I don't like administrative work. I love teaching, that's my passion. But I gave up my passion to do what supported my family more so my children could have opportunities I never had. And now I'm being accused because I earn more money. I'm not being recognized, not, no one's recognizing that the road to high pay is a toll road. I was willing to pay the tolls so my children had opportunities I never had. And the and so the man is feeling like so unappreciated for, for giving up the freedom and the and the fulfillment he wanted to make more money so that the children, uh, his, his wife had a better home and a better school district to raise the children in. Man, did, did you did you, did you know my part of my story prior to this? It's just, I mean, wow. I, I okay, did, I, want to share it. I did not I want to, tell me. Well, I, I so I just got done going through a divorce, and a lot of it was. I mean, there there was an amalgamation of things that that took place, but it was. Some things you talked about with your Jordan Peterson comment where there was, you know, I don't want to talk about it completely disclosure right now because in respect to my ex-wife, but it was just some things going on that within the relationship that were really challenging from as I was trying to connect with my daughter, wasn't necessarily given those sort of opportunities, if you will. And one comment I want to get to that came in here is that a person says truth in regards to what you're saying. And then they said, there isn't enough support for working mothers and then they resent men because there are no expectations for them to stay home. But women do feel that pressure even within their own families. What's your response to that, sir? Yes. First of all, I very much empathize with that. One of the, the reasons we need to be focusing on uh, when we told men that we needed them in war to die, men, when they were told they were needed, were willing to die for other people to live. If we begin to, to redirect our culture and saying, men, we need you to be heroes as fathers. We need you to take responsibility as fathers. That will reduce the burden on women because men will be sharing that responsibility. Um, I was married once before and 27 years ago, I met the woman who became my, my wife now. But between that, in that period of time when I was single, Every single woman that I dated who had children, she used more than anything else the word overwhelmed. She just felt torn between, I'm not doing the children right, I'm not doing my work right, I'm just exhausted at the end of the day, I don't have any energy for anybody, no less sexual energy. <laughs> and so it's like, and so, and then the men, I speak with the father, the men who have been fathers say, I feel like, you know, I, I didn't realize, especially until I got a divorce, that how much uh, the children need me, how much I need the children. And then when I did the research for the boy crisis, I found that the, 
the fathers were needed in ways that the fathers didn't even know they were needed. So for example, um, children, a, a, a dad will maybe take his three kids and throw them on the couch and say, okay, let's do some roughhousing. And the kids will be so excited. And, you know, and, the, and the job here is the three of you um, jump on my back and you see if you can get me pinned down before I get the three of you pinned down. And mom's looking at that and going, oh, my God, sooner or later, somebody's going to get hurt here. And, um, and she's only about 99% likely to be right. And so, the, um, but, but when she sees that somebody gets hurt, she thinks the dad's going to stop the roughhousing because she, now uh, she sees that, you know, the dad must see that the kid, one of the kids have gotten hurt. But dad goes, okay, you know, Jimmy, you can't stick your elbow in your sister's eye anymore. If you do that again, we'll stop the roughhousing. So they get back into roughhousing again, and the and the father uh, sees that one of the boys, let's say, is sticking his um, elbow in the uh, his brother's eye this time, and he says, okay, no more roughhousing till tomorrow night. Mom's going, what? You you still are going to do roughhousing tomorrow night? But it's tomorrow night that the dad intuitively knows that now the kids know that when they don't do what they need to do, that is be empathetic to their their sisters and brothers' feelings and needs not to be pushed around and to, to, to understand the difference between being assertive versus being aggressive. When they don't do that, they lose the roughhousing. So the children are learning three things, empathy, the distinctions between being assertive and aggressive, and they're, they're also learning to, um, to postpone gratification. That is, you can't have your roughhousing until you learn to postpone the gratification of, of just pushing your brother or sister out of the way. You have to restrain yourself. Postponed gratification tends to be the biggest predictor of success or failure. Well, I have never seen a single dad say, you know, sweetie, I just want to do some roughhousing with the kids because I'll, this will help them develop empathy. It'll help them make the social um, distinctions between being assertive and aggressive. So I'm not blaming moms for not understanding this. Moms can't hear what dads don't say. And I'm not blaming dads. The reason I wrote about this in the Boy Crisis book was because I couldn't find it in any parenting magazine explaining these and about nine other differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting that were nowhere in the culture explained to anybody. Um, so that, and that's um, such a, so to the, to the point of what this woman is saying, are mothers overwhelmed? And are they, are they, you know, do they, yes. And we need to make sure we develop a culture where we're beginning to work with boys from the age of kindergarten, first grade on to develop social skills, emotional intelligence, to honor them for being involved with their younger brothers and sisters, uh, for babysitting, for being able to be um, somebody that a woman looks to and says, you know, I'm the type of woman who wants to break through glass ceilings. So I want to be working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. But I also want children. I also want a, a wonderful man. So I'm interested in you because I see that you're a, a, a care, a nurturer, connector type of guy. And I think the children would do wonderful that, with that. I know I'll make more money than you, um, but that's, I, I will appreciate your being um, fully involved with the children and maybe making money, maybe not depending on what happens, but I'm not gonna be depending on you for that. So we need to be flexible in both the roles that we allow our sons to have and flexible in the roles that we allow our daughters to have. Ultimately, we shouldn't be having a women's movement blaming men or a men's movement blaming women. We need to have a gender liberation movement 
in which we are moving from the rigid roles of the past that restricted everybody to more flexible roles for our future. Well, it's fascinating. I had a conversation. I want to get to a comment that came in as well, but I had a conversation with a buddy of mine yesterday and he was saying, Chris, I got to tell you, like right now, because he's doing some small men's groups things. He's like, I don't even tell people about it because I feel like if I say I'm part of a men's group that I'm going to be, you know, dub some male chauvinist. And no, I'm just trying to connect with male to male to help nurture relationships. Um, Doc, I mean, I want to be respectful of your time. And yet I feel like maybe we can have you back because there's so much I want to cover with you. But um, Sean asks, can you or he comment on family law, child custody disputes, and if and how that contributes to the crisis? Do you have any suggestions to correct any family law deficiencies? Yes. First of all, judges, we need to reach out and make it really clear to judges and to the society at large um, that, that there are, there's a chapter in the Boy Crisis book that I call the four must-dos after divorce. And the number one most important must-do that is now part of a consensus report that is 100 psychologists and academics have all concluded based on the research that if you want to have the children, the children do best after divorce, that you must have about an equal amount of time, the child must have about an equal amount of time with the mother and the father. Number two, the mother and father should live within about 20 minutes drive time from each other, no more than that, so the children don't have resentment going over to the other parent's house because they have to give up uh, the birthday party or uh, a school activity like playing soccer, um, and then they, um, and they can't participate in those activities. Number three, that the children are not able to detect any bad mouthing from mother to father or from father to mother. Bad mouthing is probably the worst form of child abuse that you can that, that you can imagine because the child is looking in the mirror and hearing the father spoken of badly or the mother spoken of badly. The child is half the father and half the mother. And so she or he uh, silently begins to fear that maybe those negative qualities of the father or the mother are really negative qualities that are inside of her or him. And the child can't speak about that to the mother because um, is afraid of alienating the mother, can't speak about it to the father because they don't want the father and mother to get into conflict and further destabilize their relationship. And fourth, the children, and this is the most recent research, that the children who do the best are ones whose parents have consistent relationship counseling or couples communication counseling, uh, because, uh, not just with emergencies, because emergencies, quick decisions have to be made and people don't see the best intent of the other parent. Um, uh, over a long period of time, people are, when there's not an emergency, people can say, oh, the best intent of the mom was this, the best intent of the dad was that. Doc, I know we've got you for a limited amount of time, so we've got two more things I wanna cover if you don't mind. The first one is mm -hmm. um, before we went live, you suggested that uh, the Biden administration is, is putting together, I think you'd mentioned some form of council, but the council doesn't include boys or fathers, and yet that seems to be the biggest crisis you know, in this demographic right now. So what's going on there? Yes, um, President Biden has created a White House um, Council on Gender Policy, a White House Gender Policy Council. So I immediately looked at the mission statements for the council and the mission statements are twofold. One is gender equity, diversity, inclusion, and the other one is racial justice. So I thought that's fine. But then as I looked more carefully, the mission was the gender equity, diversity, and inclusion was only for women and girls. 
had nothing to do with boys and men. And then I said racial justice, and the racial justice was expected to be racial justice, but only for black women, black girls, minority women, minority girls. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, in the black community, the single biggest set of problems are among black males more than black females. Black males are the ones more likely to be in jail. Black males, 26 out of 27, um, black males that are, sh uh, black people who are shot by police are black males, 26 out of 27 are black males. Um, you go to a, a city, inner city, you see the homeless population, that's a black male. You driving while black is really driving while black male. And this is, and, and one of the single biggest problems that black males have, a lack of father involvement. All the most, all the black males in jails are black males without dads. And how can the Biden administration possibly be talking about racial justice if racial justice does not include black males who are doing so much worse than black females in almost every demographic, demographic and metric? And, um, uh, and then in gender equity, I mean, if you were to ask your son or daughter, um, you know, what are there? Are there boys? Yes. Are there girls? Yes. Are there both boys and girls? Are there just boys and just girls? Your five-year-old son or daughter would be able to say, there's both boys and girls. There's somehow or other the White House doesn't see the girl, the boys. They only see the sex that is doing better and want, um, re recently and wants them to do even better. That's wonderful but not also seeing that boys are having problems in more than 50 different areas and we are blind to those problems. That's not, that's not a gender policy council. If you want to call it a White House Council on Women and Girls, at least you'd be honest about it. Thank you. That was, uh, we, we, it just, it doesn't make any sense, especially after, I don't wanna to get too political with you, but I know President Biden, when he was a Senator, signed off on that crime bill, which ended up locking up a lot of black American men. And it just seems like, Let's get this thing right. So last question, sir, because our our show is really focused on being action oriented. And I do hope we can maybe do a monthly program with you because there's so much to cover on this topic is for people watching right now. What's the single most important thing each one of us can be doing to help mitigate change this boy crisis that our nation faces? Yes. If you are a man or a dad, um, if you're a dad become involved with your children, fight for that involvement. Um, but before you fight for that involvement, learn why your style of parenting, most likely style of parenting, is so helpful for the children. Explain that to your wife or ex-wife with love. Listen to her perspectives before you articulate your perspectives and, and work, out, work out something where your children can even see you work out the best of checks and balance parenting, where the children have her protection, her instincts and your instincts working together and your children see them working out. If you're a single mom at home and you make every effort to study what dads contribute, if you can in any way tell your uh, ex that you recognize and value things you didn't value about his parenting before, that will allow your ex to feel needed and he will re-engage himself almost invariably in the family. If it's hopeless, if he's either passed away or if he's in prison or if he's, um, um, if he's really a hopeless uh, uh, person, um, then, uh, then move into making sure you have, uh, get your son involved in a faith-based community with good faith-based leaders that you've, that you've vetted. Make sure the faith-based leader gets your son involved with other boys his age to talk about his feelings and fears. 
Uh, number two, get them involved with Boy Scouts, get them involved with Cub Scouts, get them involved with um, boys clubs. Cub Scouts are one of the, uh, the, the most proven builders of character um, for young boys. Uh, so if character development is something you care about, which I'm sure it is, um, get him involved in Boy Scouts. Get him involved in sports, especially three types of sports. Um, team sports, pickup team sports, and, um, and also sports that require individual um, activities like uh, tennis or gymnastics, where mostly the effort is in the individual. Read in the Boy Crisis book about the liberal arts of team sports and what each sport contributes to, to the child's development and, and spend time watching him at the sports and can, can, uh, helping him conduct a relationship between the, the male, uh, particularly a male sports figure and uh, the boy. Get, get, invite mentors over for dinner and make sure you work with the mentors to find your son somebody that he can mentor. Boys grow the most quickly and show the most love and development when they have somebody that they can care for, somebody beneath, uh, underneath them that's doing worse than they're doing, that when they that that they can be a role model for. That's actually one of the most proven ways of helping your son develop. One last question, sir, just because I know we've got 90 seconds, but I know in your interview with Jordan Peterson, you talked about the importance of family dinners. Can you just comment on that? So people yes. have an idea of how important that is, please. Family dinner nights are crucial, but it's also crucial that family dinner nights not become family dinner nightmares. Um, and the way to do that is to make sure first that the electronics are not at the table. How to do that, I explain in the Boy Crisis book, to, you know, because oftentimes there's a, a tension there. But the fr most frequent thing that does not happen at family dinner nights that needs to happen is time for each, a, a preset allotted time for each person to speak. And then before you move on to the next person in the family speaking, making sure that at least one or two people at the family dinner table um, share with the person who has just spoken uh, what you heard them say, whether there was anything distorted or anything missing, so that, that each person feels heard as they are speaking. That includes both the son, the daughter, um, and the, the son and daughter being able to hear each other, the brothers and sisters hearing each other. It also includes the obligate, you're teaching your children how to make sure that they're hearing what mom and dad are saying once they have felt heard as well. So that the family becomes what I call e pluribus unum, one from many. Uh, that is the children learn that there's nothing more powerful than the family to allow them not to have just ideas imposed on them but to hear them and to facilitate their individuality, to facilitate their unique self. Dr. Warren Farrell, thank you, thank you, thank you for committing your life to this sort of work. We'd love to have you back. And like I said, hopefully if it works for your schedule, we can do something on a somewhat of a regular basis. Okay, sir? I'd be happy to do that. So you have my commitment right here that I would be happy to do something like once a month or so with you. You're just a, you ask great questions, you listen really well. And I, I see you really tune in with uh, not just an interviewer's curiosity, but also I can feel it from, from your heart. Thank you for saying that. That means more than you know. So I want to remind our audience, uh, the book is called The Boy Crisis. Fantastic, fantastic read. So uh, please do yourself a favor, pick it up, send some to family and friends as well, because if you do your research, uh, we really are 
in a boy crisis in this nation. So I think one thing, Doc, just for our audience, and if you can back me up on this, because when we were off screen, you said, hey, Chris, one of the things regarding this uh, Joe Biden um, counsel is please contact your senators and your congressmen and let them know, or women, and tell them, hey, please speak to the White House and tell them to include young men in this council. Fair assessment on my part of what you said? Absolutely. We have to take responsibility for making it politically viable for boys and men to be included in our culture. Thank you, sir. Uh, keep up the great work and we look forward to doing this again, okay? I look very forward to uh, more of this again, absolutely. Thank you very much.